This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Radiolab is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. What if we could block a protein to stop runaway cell division? Dana-Farber laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Radiolab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. So uh, should I start us? Mm-hmm. Okay. Go for it. Three, two, two one. one. Hey, uh, I'm Simon Adler. This is Radio Lab. I'm Annie McEwen. This is Radio Lab. Well, okay, Annie, we both <laughs> find ourselves uh, in different countries talking to one another, and you've brought me here because you're picking this week's rerun. That's all I know. That's right. Yes. Um, okay, so my pick is one of your episodes, Simon. What an honor. Okay, so the reason I picked this is because the moment I met you, this episode had just come out that early, early morning, probably at 4 a.m. Yeah. And it was my first day at the office, and I just come up the elevator, and I was really nervous, and there was Simon Adler's desk, and it was empty. Where's Simon Adler? Well, he was up very, very late, making this amazing episode that you can go now listen to. Um, and then a few hours later, you came in, and you just, like, just sort of emanated this peace and calm and pride, because you had just made this episode called The Rhino Hunter... I don't know uh, if you remember that. Yeah, okay, this is now... Be- <laughs> yes, okay. Uh, I don't remember the calm, but I... I and I don't remember... <laughs> I, 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 I remember... You, we, didn't we sit on a bench your first day? I sort of recall that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like, why... Yeah. Why... But beyond that bench, why yeah. Why did you pick this? Well, okay, I mean, the Just reason- to flatter me? Was it just to flatter me? <laughs> well, I think that the reason why... I mean, I love this episode for so many reasons. But I think one in particular is just the way it totally like breaks your brain in half. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. Like uh, you, you kind of walk into it thinking like, all right, I think this way about this thing. And then, and then you kind of listen. And then about halfway through, you're like, oh wait, now I think this way about that thing. And then, <laughs> and then you're kind of sitting in this like, oh no. And the two halves of your brain are like, Ugh. and then by the end, you're just like, well, I need to go on a long walk and have, have a, like a, you know, a time to just like straighten everything out because you've just sort of like, you've just sort of plied the two pieces of my brain in part. And I think that like that, I mean, it's sort of cheesy to say at this point, but I think that is, is something that of course our world needs more of right now. And this episode just feeds it to you in pill form. Well, wow. Uh, <laughs> feel free to send me the medical bill for your brain okay. breaking. Okay, uh, cool. 
Yeah, but I'm honored. I'm honored to have broken your brain. For sure, yeah. But anyway, I don't know. Should we just, like, play it or or what? Sure. Well, yeah, yeah. it's, it's your pick, so you, yeah, do it, please. Okay, let's go. One, two, three. Chad and Robert, go. Go. Oh, wait, you're listening. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> You're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krolwich. This is Radio Lab, and today uh, a story that we've been working on for close to two years, but just before we were about <laughs> to put it on the air, this happened. Our next story in perspective, it's as if someone had killed Lassie. As you probably know, over this past summer, a Minnesota dentist named Walter Palmer paid 55 grand to get permission to hunt and kill a lion. A lion named Cecil. An African lion considered to be a national treasure in the country of Zimbabwe. He was a pretty famous lion, sort of the star of that park, and been in a few studies. So immediately there were allegations of poaching. Zimbabwe, where Cecil was killed, opened up an investigation. But what really caught our eye was the reaction from the public. Lion killer. The words painted on the home of Dr. Walter Palmer. People found out his home address, started sharing it online. Shut him down! The backlash threatening his livelihood now. Protesters gathered outside his office. Posting signs on the locked doors, branding him a coward and a killer. He was forced to temporarily close his business. Vilified across the internet. There were attacks all over social media and YouTube, and warning, this next minute contains some pretty strong language. You are truly scum of the earth, wrote one. Walter fucking Palmer. You know how fucking demented this motherfucker is? May you fucking burn to death. I want somebody to take fucking revenge. What would happen if you were being hunted, motherfucker? Six Today, we bring you a story that we hope will be a little bit of signal in all that noise. This is a story about the the strange relationship between wanting to hunt and kill an animal and wanting to save it. And it comes from our producer, Simon Adler. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. All right, so this story really started for me uh, in Salt Lake City. This past February, I went to the Western Hunting and Conservation Expo, sometimes referred to as the Super Bowl of hunting. So I'm walking through uh, this airplane hangar-sized... Room. It's at this massive convention center called the Salt Palace. Over 40,000 people there. Gun manufacturers, there were bow makers, there were duck call makers. This one's a single read. Camouflage clothing apparel companies. Well, this place is rocking, and I hope you're having a good time. And if you're having a good time, I want to hear a big yeehaw. yee-haw! Woo! As part of the expo, off this main floor, there was a banquet hall where there was an MC who was working the crowd. Well, tonight, I want to continue on a couple of thoughts that we touched on last night. You know, our greatest conservation president, Theodore Roosevelt, said, the wildlife and its habitat cannot speak for itself, so we must. Well, let me tell you, we have, and we will continue to speak, but we've got to go further than speaking. We're going to have to suit up in our armor to go into battle to protect our wildlife and our way of life. Well, let me tell you, we are at war brought on by the extreme radical environmental movement. If we're not vigilant and engage this enemy, 
the most endangered species in America could be the American hunter. Now, one of the things that surprised me kind of right off the bat was talking to people. Everybody kept coming back to this idea and hitting on this idea that, like, if it weren't for us, if it weren't for the hunters... The animals would not be alive. Without us hunting them, they would go extinct. I got that line over and over again. There would be no animals other to hunt. Basically what they mean by this is they are the ones that are paying to keep these animals around. They are the ones who are funding conservation. And I saw what that looked like on the final night of the expo, Saturday night, uh, when the organizers held this auction. And now is the time to open your wallets. Get out your checkbooks, your credit cards. In fact, we'll even take IOUs written on the back of a napkin. Let's make some money for wildlife, buddy. Let's do it. Our first auction item tonight presented... The first couple items, they were just like guns. It's an American-made Ruger. Rifles. But then... Item number three, we're going to full curl stone. The a picture of this sheep pops up on this jumbo screen up on the stage. Big stone sheep, as you can see right there. Right? Big ones. Big ones. Huge curling horns. Thick brown coat. Beautiful color. Beauti- that's on the bucket list, brother. Yep. That's on the bucket list. So the winner of this auction item, what they're actually buying is the chance to go up to Canada on this very specific area and to shoot one of these sheep, to get a tag to shoot one of these sheep. I have an opening bid of $30,000. That's what I'm talking about. Let's go 32 and a half. 32 and a half. One down, but I'm now to get to an now, but I'm now to get 32 and a half for one of the best stone units there is. I'm 32 and a half down the middle. Need 35. One time, but I'm now to get five. 35,000. One time and last call. Sold him right over here. $35,000. Legrand. A few items later. Let's keep it rolling. We're on number six. A picture of a moose comes on the screen. For all of you moose hunters, want a great Shiris moose. The kind of moose that, you know, their antlers fan out like giant wings. Ladies and gentlemen, I got $10,000. Somebody give me 12 and a half. 12 and a half. One dollar, but I'm going to have an 12 and a half. 15. One dollar, but I'm going to have to give you 15. 17 and a half. 17 and a half. 20. 20. Two and a half. One dollar, but I'm going to 25. But I'm 25 but a 30 one time but I'm gonna get 35 one time but I'm gonna 40 Wait, so how like how does the conservation angle work exactly? so basically how this works is each state has an agency that's responsible for managing its wildlife yes and so if you're a hunter you basically have to buy a tag from that state agency in order to shoot just about any animal For example, in Arizona, Arizona is this grid of hunting areas, and you apply to a lottery for Zone B, I would really like to be able to shoot a moose. You put your $20 in, this is typical, and if your name comes up, you get your tag for $20. But it's possible that you're not going to get one, and sometimes you have to wait 10 or 20 years, especially for these big game animals. So what these agencies do, they set aside a certain number of these tags every year, which are called conservation tags. And what these conservation tags are is like, if you just give a bunch of money right now, I did not see this coming. you have free range to do what you want. Hop the line, shoot the animal you want, no waiting. $80,000, he did it! He freaking did it! And then all that money goes back to those state agencies for uh, land management, habitat restoration. Like, we're talking millions of dollars that get raised this way. One auction item that I saw sold that night. A special big game enhancement package. Which basically gave whoever won it the right to shoot just about any animal in the entire state of New Mexico for a year. I'm 175. I'll go 80. One time, but I'm going to have 80, 80. Now, but I'm going to have 180. 
180. Now it again, 90. One time, but now it again, 90, 90, 90. Booyah! <laughs> Sold it $230,000. Ladies Whoa. and gentlemen, it's close to you. Need to do a sound check. Yeah, I just get some levels. And in fact, <laughs> the whole reason I had come to this convention was to talk to a guy who had done an auction like this. <laughs> but in his case, it kind of blew up on him. <sighs> I honestly did not expect to be in the position that I am today. My name's Corey Knowlton. C O R E Y. K N O W L T O N. And is that how you're going to sit? You're going to lean back more? I, you know, I'll probably move around a lot. Yeah, okay. Corey Knowlton has become kind of the poster child of this idea of hunter conservation. He's a Texas millionaire. I met him in his hotel room right across the street from the expo. He was in a white t-shirt, blue jeans, a little bit of stubble on his face. And story goes, back in January of 2014, he was at an expo super similar to this one, put on by the Dallas Safari Club. I had my wife with me. He was just walking the floor when he bumped into a friend of his. A gentleman by the name of John Jackson, okay? And John Jackson heads up a, a group called Conservation Force. So anyway, John came to me. And he told Corey that he was worried, that the Dallas Safari Club... They were auctioning off an opportunity to hunt a black rhino in Namibia. The Namibian Ministry of Environment and Tourism had given them one tag to hunt one black rhino, and they were going to auction it off. Now, the black rhino is a critically endangered species. There are about 5,000 of them in the world, about 2,000 in Namibia. And what the Namibian government does is they auction off the older males. What happens is the black rhino gets older, it sees other rhinos, it wants to attack them oftentimes and kill them. So the government will offer up those problem rhinos for trophy hunting and then use the money to protect the others from poachers. Is poaching of the black rhinos a real issue? A huge issue. Rhino horn right now, it goes, what's the number? $60,000 a pound. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's worth like three times as much as gold per ounce. Damn. In any case, Corey says the reason that John was so worried. John said, Corey, there's been a, a, a giant push of people coming out against this. It's literally a license to kill. People don't want it to happen. A permit to hunt down and kill one of the world's most endangered animals. He said, I'm really worried that um, we're not going to have someone to bid this minimum bid. His friend was worried that there were going to be these Namibian ministers there, and they, they just didn't want to be embarrassed. So John asked me, he said, would you at least bid the minimum bid? Just to sort of, like, get the auction rolling. And as a friend of somebody that I've been friends with for over a decade, I said, yes, I'm, I would do that. So, night of the auction. They started this auction just like any other auction. Eventually... Corey makes his bid. $350,000. Thinking that would just go to the other bidders. That's right. I was like, you know what? I'm going to do what I told you. I'm going to follow through with my commitment. It's when all of a sudden... Going once, going twice. Boom, it happens. You know, I'm just me. I'm just Corey Nolton. I'm just a guy. I take people hunting. But immediately, I've got people surrounding me. You know, a giant line of people congratulating me. He's like, I didn't expect to be the guy who'd get it, but okay. But next 48 hours, 
We now know who paid $350,000 for a hunting permit to kill an endangered black rhino in Namibia. A barrage of threats started coming. He's being bombarded with death threats. Among the thousands of postings, I hope the rhino rips you in half. Do your children know what a monster their father is? I hope you get what you deserve, a short and painful existence. Corey says people threatened to murder his parents, to rape his wife to death. I'm coming to your house. I'm going to burn it down. I'm going to put your kids in a wood chipper, and I'm going to do it in front of you. At any point in this, have you been super enthralled by the idea? Have you always wanted to shoot a black rhino? Yeah. Hey, hey Nate. Yes. Yeah, you're going to have to now. We're going to have to be quiet. I definitely haven't always wanted to shoot a black rhino. Have I always wanted to hunt for as long as I remember? Yes. Okay. <sighs> I had a big journey in life. When I was born, we had literally nothing. He told me he grew up in rural Missouri in a small house, then a trailer home. His mom raised the family. His dad loaded trucks at Safeway. Okay, and we're trying to survive as a family. So when Corey was eight... We left Missouri in a, in a Monte Carlo with $2,500 in the bank and a dream to make it in this world, okay? So by the time I was 15, we had moved all over the United States. His dad picked up jobs in Arizona, Texas. I'm going from school to school to school. I didn't really have the benefit of getting in any sports teams or whatever, but the one thing I did is I had a dad that worked his butt off every day. I didn't get to spend much time with him. So then when we would want to go do things, hey, Dad, let's go dove hunting. It's dove season. You know, and he loved that. He mentioned this one time when he was 11. We go out. I have a shotgun in my hand. Two doves fly up, and I shoot, and both of them died. One shot fell right there, okay? I went over there, got the doves. Went through cleaning them, okay, and preparing to cook them. And just being in that moment and not worrying about, um, you know, other problems that you may, that we all go through in life and just having a nice, quiet time with my dad. I looked at it as a privilege to go hunting. I didn't look at it like, hey, it's my right to go out and, and, and take some animal's life. I look at it like, this is an awesome opportunity I get to go spend with my dad outside. Now... As I became older, I became more interested in hunting. I wanted to learn about bows. I wanted to learn about hunting. I was ate up with it. By the time he was in his mid-20s, he says, and this is right around the time his dad hit it big in the oil industry, he was leading hunts all around the world. From the North Pole to as far south as you could hunt in New Zealand. Nepal. Papua New Guinea. So I've seen the whole world. And he says somewhere in the middle of all of those trips, he realized. That there's a big fight out there. This large biomass of humanity is taking over the world and wildlife doesn't exist by accident anymore. And so he started thinking about not just hunting these animals. But preserving them and and keeping them here. All of which is to say when he won that auction without meaning to and started getting all those death threats, he didn't turn back. What on earth is keeping you so steadfast in going ahead and doing this? I think I would have thought... I shouldn't have done this. I was willing to do this, and it may have not been what I planned on, but I was willing to do this based on a commitment I made to a friend. I made a commitment to my family. I made a commitment to conservation as a whole. Look, this was never about me going over and taking a black rhino's life. Like, finally, I get to achieve the zenith of life and killing this black rhino. Give me a break. It was about a method of conservation to keep black rhinos on the face of this earth. You are saying that you're doing this for conservation. Your detractors will say, 
they will say, you say you are only doing it for conservation when you are really doing it for... I say I was only doing it for conservation. No, I'm not saying that's what you've said. I'm saying oh, okay. that this is what they will throw okay, at you. You are, only, you are saying you're only doing it for conservation Well, all you are actually getting out of it is some sort of satisfaction. And can you talk for a minute about... Talk for more than a minute about okay, it. Okay. okay, all right, sure. I enjoy the act of hunting. Can I tell you why? Could I wrap that up in a real pretty burrito for you to be able to eat and understand and it tastes good? No, but I can tell you that I care about the survival of these species. And do you understand why people have a hard time wrapping their mind around that, you believing that, and simultaneously wanting to kill an animal? Or does that just, does it not compute I mean, to you at all? I mean, at what point we're, we're, we're getting redundant, they're missing the whole boat. We don't have one without the other, okay? If we want wildlife to be around for future generations, we have to understand that that wildlife has to have a value. If it doesn't have a value, especially in the continent of Africa, it's going to be gone. And here he made a sort of economic argument. He said, you got to keep in mind that living next to a black rhino, not just talking about it, but actually living next to a black rhino, it's a nightmare. I mean, who wants to live next door to a raging psychopathic beast that's killing things? No one. So in just very purely economic terms, it has a negative value. But what Corey will tell you and what conservation organizations like World Wildlife Fund and various others will tell you is by him paying $350,000 to shoot one, he is creating a positive value for that animal. He's creating jobs for game wardens. He's creating jobs for trackers. So you got to look at the net benefit. It's there. Well, and so what, what is the common ground here? Because you guys want the same things, and yet there's somehow this... No, 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 no. We don't want the same things. Conservationists in general do. The common ground has to be, do you or do you not want to see black rhinos on the face of the earth. And I think everyone agrees that they do. But I think even... No, they don't. No, I think they do. I, I, because their actions are speaking louder than their words. They're all... I, in, I think to a lot of people, there are these neo-colonial sentiments here. That you are this guy who has a lot of money and you are paying a lot of money to go to Africa to shoot this thing. And I think that that causes a reaction in certain people... Do you think the amount of money plays into it or no? I'm going to take a break for one second. Okay. Okay. When you, you, you can say you don't want to answer anything or that... No, I, I want to give you the best okay. possible answer. Do you understand that? No, I'm, I do I'm, get I'm it. trying. Okay, I'm really trying. To an emotional level where I'm like, God dang, man. I want these people to get it so fucking bad. I just don't know if I'm going to be able to... We can stop. No, it's, you don't have to stop. Just give me a second. And I know that the words that I put out mean something. And I don't want to do a disservice. And I feel like I'm letting people down. And I'm not a radical psychopath. You can see that. Okay, it's just something I believe in. I can believe in these animals, and I believe that I want them here. But I also understand that death is inevitable. But the death of the species doesn't have to be. And so I'm putting myself through this because I believe in that it's right, because I've seen that it's right. And I'll go down and I will sit next to people in Africa 
both indigenous and non-indigenous, that have the exact same belief. And they want these animals. They love them. They want their kids to see it. They know that one night when the um, stars are above and they're sitting there with their family and a lion roars in a distance, they, they feel that. They feel what it means to be afraid of it. They feel what it means to respect it. They feel what it means to love it. And they want that to continue. And I want that to continue in a realistic view, a realist view. I believe I have a grasp on what it takes for that to continue. Thank you for being so honest. I don't have any other questions. Okay. So that conversation happened over six months ago. At that point, the the hunt was totally in limbo. He was still receiving death threats. Uh, Animal welfare organizations like Humane Society of the United States were lobbying and petitioning to try to stop the hunt. And what it all really hinged on was a decision to be made by U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Under the Endangered Species Act, it's illegal to import the carcass of an endangered species into the United States unless you can prove that by killing and importing that animal, you are helping the species as a whole. So that's what U.S. Fish and Wildlife had to decide. Would Cory killing and importing that one black rhino help black rhinos as a whole? March went by, April, and then in early May, I got a text from Corey that just read, let's talk tomorrow. Kill me up. We take a trip. from Johannesburg, South Africa. Radiolab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Science reporting on Radiolab is supported in part by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Radiolab is supported by BetterHelp. Whether it's already 2 a.m. on a fun night out, graduation time, a new year, we can find ourselves wishing we had more time, wondering where it all went. But there's a question. If we were magically given that time back, what would we do with it? Perhaps you'd spend more time with a friend that you've lost touch with or petting your dog or just noticing the sweetness of doing nothing. The best way to let those special things into your life is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority going forward. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. 
Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Radiolab today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Radiolab. Radiolab is supported by TurboTax. TurboTax experts make all your moves count, filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. So whether you started a podcast, side-hustled your way to concert tickets, or sold Hollywood memorabilia, switch to TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. Radio Lab is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. If you're a bad protein in a cancer cell, you'd better get your affairs in order because now, thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target cancer-causing proteins and destroy them right inside the cell. This take-no-prisoners approach is making a difference in multiple myeloma and other blood cancers and is how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Hi, I'm Adam Grant, host of the podcast Rethinking a show where I talk to some of today's greatest thinkers about the unconventional ways they see the world. On Rethinking, you'll get surprising insights from scientists, leaders, artists, and more. People like Reese Witherspoon, Malcolm Gladwell, and Yo-Yo Ma. Hear lessons to help you find success at work, build better relationships, and more. Find Rethinking wherever you get your podcasts. Pleasure, bye-bye. All right, we are off the plane walking uh, into the airport. I suppose this would be the first time we've actually stepped foot uh, in Namibia. The, uh, the destination. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krolwich. Back to our reporters, Simon Adler. Okay, so days after getting that text message, I land in Namibia, meet back up with Cork. Today we're in Windhoek, Namibia. It's the 13th of May, 2015. This is Simon's big day to interview local officials, professional hunters, and any bum on the street that wants to comment. Well, and, and how long have we been traveling for? Probably like close to 48 hours now. You're, you're feeling all right at this point? I feel a lot better now. Just getting off the plane and feeling the wind. And... The airport is tiny. We get through customs and everything, and immediately... I'm Simon. Simon, I'm Hinti. Nice to meet you, man. We're met by the PH, Hinti van Heerde. The PH. I am a professional hunter. The professional hunter. Requested by Colin Norton to assist him on his hunt. He's sort of the manager of this entire project. Big dude, scraggly beard, short shorts. We need to go and pick up our stuff. He leads us out of the airport. So what does the day's agenda hold for us? Uh, sort chaos out. Sorting chaos out, okay. <laughs> your, your chaos just started, my friend. So we get in his truck, start driving. And do you mind if I ask you some questions while we drive here? Bring it on. And I immediately just realized what a headache putting all this together has been for him. Oh, 10 million phone calls. Meetings after meetings with uh, Minister of Environment and Tourism. Head office checking with local offices. All to help them figure out which is the best rhino for Um, Corey to shoot. So they had their list. And so how many, at this point, do you know exactly which one you'll be going after? Or are there a couple? The main place we've identified, there is two rhinos we can remove from that area. Both male, aggressive, post-reproductive. We're going to try to get on one of these two animals and try to remove it as professionally as we can possibly do. So we're at the uh, Ministry of Environment and Tourism. 
This is apparently a meet and greet. Later that day, we stopped to shake hands with the permanent secretary, Simeon Nagumbo. And uh, I want to welcome you all to, to Namibia. He gave this kind of prepared speech about how trophy hunting is a big part of why Namibia is considered the gold standard of conservation in Africa. This program assists us to have our wildlife growing. Previously, our wildlife was almost uh, declining, like uh, elephants were less than 1,000. But now we have plenty of them. We don't know where to put them in. Twenty so, <laughs> uh, something thousand. So they, they are many now. So you've so, uh, been so successful yeah. that you have to deal with a surplus. Yeah, yeah. all type of species we have here. They are, they are growing fast. Fast forward to the next morning. It's 4.46 a.m. I doubt that Simon nor I got any sleep last night. Despite all that, someone's gonna get hurt before you're through. He was in high spirits. I woke up this morning, it was drizzling rain. Around the curb came a passenger train. First thing bringing down to the truck is a firearm and the ammunition. Big knives and things for, so we can skin another rhino. Morning, morning. How are you? Hinty was on the phone uh, taking care of final details. And much to my chagrin, there was this crew of CNN reporters hanging around. <laughs> Once everything was loaded, we took off for the airport. Should I leave you here, Corey? Yeah. And I waved them off. Okay. Um, happy hunting. Good right, luck. Thanks, man. You what? What was that again? You waved? I don't understand. I, uh, I wasn't able to go on the rhino hunt itself. What? I know, I know. You're, Are you serious? You seem disappointed. What happened? Number one... Uh, a hunting party can only be so large in Namibia. And with these three CNN guys there, the the party was just full. But you also have to understand... CNN! I was in the country illegally. Um, I had no press pass. I had no press visa. So this was like, oh, I've got to keep my head down. Okay, this is... Yeah, that is our fault. Um, (laughs) So are you telling me the story is over? Is that what you're basically saying? No, no, no. Don't worry. Corey's personal cameraman, he promised to give me all of his audio. So we do have the audio and we'll get to that. But while they were headed up north, I actually ended up going east. And where I went, totally unexpectedly, made this model of conservation and how it works, like, really finally clicked into place for me. Uh, do you mind just telling me your name and where we are? Well, my name is André Swanepoel. My name is Estelle Swanepoel. I'm uh, sort of the owner of these concerns. I'm going to keep you company. All right, sounds good. André and Estelle Swanepoel own the Aru Game Farms, which are a series of huge swaths of land that they've fenced in. Uh, in total, they have like over 200 square miles of land that actually used to be filled with cattle. And uh, 15, 16 years ago, we converted into a, a game farm. Basically, they decided to get rid of all the cattle and bring in all these animals. Uh, they've got giraffes, they've got two different species of zebra, wildebeest, artebeest. In all, they've got 29 different species, including... How many black rhino are on the property here? Uh... Up until about three weeks ago, there were 10, and now we, uh, we've got 11. So One of the hunting guides, <laughs> Steph. Uh, Steph Joubert at the uh, Aru Game Lodges in Namibia. Uh, told me that they actually just had a rhino born on the property, and in fact, they've had several throughout the years born on this property. And he took me out to find one. We're going to look for signs and, and keep our eyes peeled. And- so what should I be looking for if I'm going to be of any help here? Yeah, in the distance, it'll just look like a big gray rock. 
you really got to have a keen eye. <laughs> we were driving through this really tall, thick grass that kind of enveloped yeah. the car. It was, it was almost like we were driving through a cloud. So it's, this is the Kalari sour grass. It's a uh, real thick. It's almost like the mice can run on top of it. Yeah. And after searching and searching and searching... We've just spotted the rhino. Oh, shit, there it is. Like, a hundred yards away. Oh, man, okay. One, okay. Oh, shit, it's pointing at us. He's, uh, he's noticed us now. He's probably heard the vehicle. So, you know, we're still at a very safe distance. I'm just, I want to get us into the shade, and then we can have a closer look, and you can put the binoculars up and take a, a real good look at it. Oh, man. Looking through the binoculars, and he's just pointed straight at us. His head's moving left to right, left to right. I think this is a bull by the looks of things. God, it looks like a dinosaur, doesn't it? It is a very prehistoric looking animal. He knew you were there? Oh yeah, he was totally looking at us. I'm going to put the binoculars on and see. He's, he's trotting away from us. Yeah, it started moving away from us path, and they've got these tiny looking legs, so when they run they have to kind of shuffle along. I think if the grass wasn't there you would laugh at him the way they move. It's, uh, <laughs> it is quite comical. Very lucky to have, to have found one. Jesus. So we were tailing behind it, and the crazy thing is this huge animal that weighs like over a ton. Oh, and it is on the move. This thing can move yeah, like 30 miles that. per hour. We're currently driving at about 15 kilometers an hour, and he's getting away from us. Kind of left us behind. So he wants nothing to do with us. He's moving off. He... At one point before it took off, um, we actually got close enough that with the binoculars on, Steph was able to get a good look at its ear. The, the bulls that were put here initially have all got earmarks. And this one doesn't actually have an earmark in it, so perhaps this one was born on this property. And so how does that work? How did, how did the rhinos get to be on this property? Uh, the, the, the Ministry of Environment and Tourism had been in touch with the owner of Aru Game Lodges. Government said, hey, you've got all this land. Will you take a couple of these rhinos and protect them for us? And they said, sure. You know, we started off with a couple, three rhino, and the numbers grew. And it becomes this, like, strange foster care type situation. Yeah, each year we have to take photos of them, and we build up a portfolio, and then we can send it into MET. It's interesting that, like, they are breeding here. So there are more of them now than there would have been if they hadn't been moved here, Yeah. Yes, exactly. And <clears throat> another thing, uh, we were unlucky last year. We actually, we lost two rhinos. Steph said he wanted to show me something. Uh, drove for about 10 minutes. Then he stopped the car at this small clearing, almost no grass, one lone tree. Kind of an eerie feeling. That's what I sort of feel when I stumble across this place. Oh, man. And can you just describe what we're looking at right here? Bones scattered all over the red sand of the Kalari. Bleach white bones against red, red sand. See the thema, we can see some parts of the spine as well. Is that a rhino skull? Yeah. The sheer size of it is just unreal. Wow. Did you see that there? We, we got out of the car and like actually like held these bones. Oh, God. Wow. How, how did that happen? And, uh, it was the dominant bull. It was fighting with a younger bull. The two squared off, and the older one ended up goring the younger one with its horn, uh, or at least we think. Unfortunately, the young bull passed away. Uh, so it killed it. Yeah. Then this, this older bull that had just killed the younger one 
Steph told me it then went up to this female. Wanted to reproduce and the f- young female wasn't ready. She wasn't uh, mature enough yet. He kept forcing himself on her over and over. Until, until she couldn't any longer. I guess it would happen in nature as well. It's uh, just unfortunate that they had to be, yeah. Um, so yeah, they would have been even more, but uh, nature took its course. We didn't get involved and that's how it is. Steph explained to me that it was these type of black rhinos, these older, aggressive bulls that get auctioned up for guys like Corey to come over and shoot. And then all the money that's been paid for it is going back, all going back into... Uh, anti-poaching unit is going back into conserving uh, rhinos and it's nice to see such a large sum of money coming in for a good cause so he believes in this program but personally I'd I'd never be able to to shoot a a black rhino I don't know and why what what about you personally wouldn't shoot a rhino uh, for me I, I don't know I can't really explain why what, no, I don't know. It's difficult to say, but no, I just doesn't tickle me. Over the next couple of days at the lodge, as I was hanging out with kind of these tourists from all over the world who had come here to be wined and dined, and then go out and shoot stuff in the morning and afternoon, Steph's ambivalence started to make a deep sort of sense to me. For instance, I spent a lot of time with this guy. Yeah, Stefan Lindström. I'm from Sweden. Middle-aged, there with his family on vacation. We decided six years ago that we will go to Africa. So I'm very happy to be here today. This is six years in the making for you. Yeah, you can say so. so. He works in Volvo's corporate office, and he's a big trophy hunter. Maybe I should show you some picture from my home. Do you have lots on the wall already? At home it's 40. And after the camp we have at least uh, 50 more. I got to follow him on a few hunts, him and his guide. My name is Benjamin Scriver. Scriver is my surname. One of the hunts we spent about two and a half hours searching for different animals, stalking different animals. And then in the distance... We saw saw a very nice waterbuck bull there. We finally found a waterbuck. Which is what? It's kind of like a reindeer, but uh, it has these two big long horns that kind of shoot backwards, almost like spears. Big animal. Yep, big animal. But I just do not, do not know how old he is, so we're just going closer and see. We hop down from the car and just start kind of slowly moving towards it through the grass. This type of animal is the top for me this weekend, uh, this uh, holiday. Stefan told me he had a list of animals he was hoping to shoot, and this was at the top of this one. I think it's such a beautiful big animal. That's why. The game lodge charges $2,800 to shoot one. Okay, the water bug is here, sir. He's it. Straight. Okay. Okay, let's go and see. Okay. So at the moment, there's light wind. We're walking through shin-length grass. There are shrubs to the left and the right. Every, like, ten minutes, we'd stop to measure how far away it was. It's about uh, 600 meters. 600 meters there. I think it will take about 20 minutes to come rather close to them. Okay. Eventually, we got just a couple hundred feet away from it. The animal's off in the distance. It's just kind of pacing. You want 
Ben pulls out this tripod, sets it up, and Stefan gets into position. He's standing behind. He's standing. No, 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 no. Stop. Stop. Please, stop. Or... That's the right one. Yep. The buck stumbles a few paces. I mean, he's down. Yeah, falls down. But then it gets right back up and stumbles forward. Put another bullet yeah, in. I have it. one in. Just one, one in? Yeah, that's a good. The okay. first shot didn't kill it. I was needing to shoot rather high because it was a lot of grass. At this point, Ben seems tense. He doesn't like that, I think. I don't care. Because <laughs> like, he knows that the animal is suffering. Uh, so the dog takes off, runs after it, and just keeps it at bay by kind of circling it. And we start moving towards it. Let's go closer. Just wait, just wait. You relax, 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 relax. Again, second shot doesn't kill it. Falls down, gets back up, falls down again. Down more. down. It's up. Shit. Just relax. Relax and just. It's writhing in the grass. Ben now seems pretty upset. <laughs> I don't know where you shot it the first time, but. Uh... Uh, rather high. And the third shot wait. doesn't kill it. Just wait. Fuck. Shit. This is not fun. This is not fun. I see the dog. I can shoot him in the neck. I will try. Okay. Finally, fourth shot, it goes limp. Damn. There's so many shots. It's lying on the ground. It's is still kicking a little bit, but it is, it's done. Oh, it's so nice. Yeah, I am so happy. I'm so happy. I mean, this was the top of the list for me this weekend. So this hunt is perfect. It's very nice feelings. So Seeing it up close, it can be emotionally difficult. But when you pan out, it's pretty clear. The numbers show that this Namibian model is working. Um, Wildlife numbers on private land have gone up by almost 80% since the government allowed people to buy, sell, and shoot wildlife on their land. And since trophy hunting of the black rhino was legalized, uh, that population has grown by like 30%. But front of my face. not all African conservationists are on board. I talked to a guy named Richard Leakey, a super famous anthropologist, who also directed Kenya's wildlife program for a while. And I asked him, what is your stance on this idea of sustainable use uh, of wildlife? Listen to me. I think it's utterly ridiculous. You know, if a father can't afford to pay school fees for his children, does he say to somebody, you can rape my daughter so I can get the money to pay for her school fees? I mean, I think we've got to set some standards in life. And I think this is nonsense, what, what this argument is about. Killing wild animals so that they can be looked after absolutely sends the wrong message. This was the big issue he took 
with Namibia's strategy. Yes, you can you can afford to lose five rhinos from a, a breeding perspective, but does that send a right message? He then told me a story about when he took over Kenya's wildlife service in 1989. At the time, things were dire. Elephants were being killed at an alarming number, and we were going to lose our elephants totally. Poaching was on the rise, and his predecessors had actually confiscated a huge number of elephant tusks from these poachers. Twelve tons. Twelve tons. If you saw it, you thought, that's a lot of ivory. Uh, And they recommended to him, sell this ivory, make about $3 million, and then use that money to help fight poaching. But Leakey said no. What he did instead was he built a giant tower out of that ivory. And set fire to it. Millions of dollars in ivory taken by poachers burned. More than 12 tons of contraband elephant tons of illegally poached ivory worth several million dollars. It burned for three days. It got television, it got newspaper, it got magazine, it got radio. It was this massive PR stunt to draw the world's attention to the plight of elephants. And part of what he was saying in that was like, we have to value these things beyond their dollar value. We have to respect the intrinsic value of these creatures. But wait a second. If you're burning a bunch of ivory, aren't you, in effect, increasing the value of the ivory? Because now there's just less of it out there? Well, so you're looking at the supply end of it, right? Um, Yes, by reducing supply, that would push up price. Leaky was attacking the demand side. What an impact it had around the world. Opinion changed overnight. He said it woke the public up. People stopped buying ivory, and the market for ivory... It just crashed. Up to that time, we'd been losing about 3,500 elephants to 4,000 elephants a year. Mm-hmm. And a year later, we were losing at most 60. Really? It had an enormous impact, my friend. Getting a public that, that supports conservation of wildlife, that's a huge challenge. And we just can't afford, I think, to send out the wrong messages. But the problem with that is... Finding the right message is getting harder and harder. I called various conservation organizations, and one guy who I talked to told me that their average age of donor is getting older. Uh, More and more people are just living in cities. Less people are having positive experiences in the natural world at a young age. And so he said that they're going to have to continue focusing on people, focusing on us. This message of, what does wildlife give us? What does it do for people? This is our third day up in the area. Still no luck, and we're just going to keep at it. Back in Namibia, after three days of bushwhacking through this dense vegetation up in the north of the country, Corey and his crew finally got on the tracks of the right rhino. The local guy says, we found a rhino that had killed another rhino that had killed another rhino. So we're going to follow this one make 100% sure that it's the right one, and then we'll try to take it if we can. So for the next couple hours, they, they track the animal looking for basically footprints anywhere that has marked its territory. So we've been tracking this thing for probably a couple hours now. We've bumped it at least twice. We were, had walked at this point just about 12 miles. It was very hot. You can see how thick it is right here. Pretty tense. The grass was so thick that they really couldn't see more than about 30 feet in front of them. And eventually they find... You can see this is the rhinos. A pile of rhino feces that's still warm. It's still very moist. I mean, it's fr- this is, we're not more than an hour behind that animal right there. And you can see the dumb beetles and everything in it. And so... This animal's already angry. We sat there for a few minutes, right? Gathered our thoughts. There's not a single gun that came. 
So then let's you li- you line it out. We're gonna do what you say. And then about two hours later, I heard some noise from my left. All I see is a running beast with a giant saber on its head. It was like lightning. So he also didn't get it with the first shot. The first several shots did not kill this thing. It ran off and then they had to start tracking it again. Was it just wounded? Yes. We followed it, I would say, 10 minutes. I don't know. I looked over there, I saw it. It, Was it lying down at this point? It was standing up, but it had already fallen down twice. It was dying. And then... I shot it a few more times. The last thing you do is once you're really assured it's dead, you touch its eye. And if it doesn't blink, it's gone. So did you go touch its eye? Absolutely. In a moment like that, is there some sort? Is, is there a conversation going on now that the animal is, is is dead and you're not? No. We just kind of looked at everybody, looked at each other, made sure we were okay. There wasn't a whole lot of talk right then in this case. But it was an emotional moment for me. So the meat, we've been sitting here skinning this animal so far this morning, and now we're about to roll it over, skin the other side, and then just take the quarters off just like any other animal that you would if you were on a hunting trip. They loaded up all the meat to be shipped off to a local village, and they kept a little bit of it for themselves. So cooking my first piece of black rhino meat here on the coals next to the carcass, right here's the moment when everybody here has started eating some of this black rhino. So it's just a a part of hunting and a part of being a human. So it's a pretty unique and awesome moment right here. I'm, I'm not really morally outraged by it. Maybe I'm a little, but I think you might be vulnerable if you insist that your enthusiasm for hunting is part of the balance of nature. But I think it's Robert, a perfectly... you don't have those canine teeth for eating salad. And I understand that people don't like it any more than they wouldn't like going and killing the lamb of the lamb chops they eat. Well, what but I that mean, doesn't I mean, mean that it's wrong. Hunting... It's part of who we are. Now, it may be a bigger part of who I am than you are, and that's fine. But when wildlife populations abound is when they're managed by human beings. The alternate model might be a view of humans that's different from yours. I think you assume that because we are smart and because there are so many of us that inevitably we will bump into them. And when we do, we will win. And thus, your calculations. The alternate model might be that because we are smart, we might create a space where we won't bump into them. Now you're, now you're not in a real world. We're dealing not in reality. Okay, I'm, I'm living in a world that matters and that's real. So it's not, it's not a dream scenario, and it's not saying, okay, well, let's just create this. Unfortunately, these animals don't have that time. So I'm not trying to outsmart anybody. It's just a traditional method that's worked. And until somebody comes up with a methodology that we could look at and say this is a better way, I'm going to continue to fight and believe in the traditional model. So now we're going to ask ourselves these questions. How do we really, on an individual basis, value this animal's survival on Earth? Do you really value it? 
Do you value it past making 75 characters into your iPhone and tweeting about it? Do you value it past watching Animal Planet? To me, I know and I care and I placed an extreme value financially, physically, emotionally on the survival of the black rhino. Reporter and producer Simon Adler. We had uh, considerable production support uh, for this piece from Matthew Kielty, who also contributed some original music. Special thanks to Chris Weaver, Ian Wallace, Mark Barrow, Ryan Tarbett, the Lindstrom family, and everyone at the Aru Game Lodge in Namibia. Hi, my name is Mish Rogers. I'm calling from Kansas City, Missouri. Radio Lab is produced by Jad Abumrad. Our staff includes Brenna Farrell, Ellen Horn, David Gable, Dylan Keefe, Matt Kilty, Andy Mills, Latif Nasser, Kelsey Paget, Ariane Wack, Ariane Wack, Molly Webster, Soren Wheeler, and Jamie York, with help from Molly McBride Jacobson, Alexandra Lee Young, and Simon Adler. Our fact checkers are Eva Dasher and Michelle Harris. 